So that Dhamma talk we've just been listening to, uh, given by Ajahn Chah many years ago, uh, a very succinct presentation of our practice and the example he was using on that occasion was uh, how the movements of mind, the activities uh, of our hearts and minds can be likened to that of a highly poisonous cobra snake. Course, living in the forest there in Wapapong, and the uh, particular woman that Ajahn Chah was speaking to at the time and not used to being in the forest was a very uh, fitting image. Uh, you want to be careful walking through the forest. You don't want to step on a cobra snake. And, but if you do see a cobra snake, he was pointing out, even though it's poisonous, it's not a problem unless you grab it. And so the teaching being that all the experiences we have, all the movements of consciousness, the agreeable, the disagreeable, the likable, the dislikable, all of it is just so. And if we don't cling to it, then there's no suffering. The suffering is not because of the likable or dislikable mood that we're in. The suffering is the clinging and in various ways, uh, Ajahn Shah was pointing out how you start off with the uh, effort to maintain a, a consistent mindfulness which is associated with uh, sampajanya and, and eventually giving rise to panya or, or wisdom, uh, understanding. And that the real understanding he talks about, as, uh, as the Buddha did with the image of uh, putting out of the fire, that uh, when all the fires have gone out, then there's a coolness, and and this is the the goal of practice: this contentment, this ease, this well-being. That uh, the way he talked about it is a very natural state, but we live in an unnatural state because of the way we relate to our experiences. So. And this uh, ties in very well with what I was speaking about last night and again uh, Ajahn Chah's teachings, uh, particularly uh, with regards to how we relate to forms and the spirit of the teachings. Mm. The forms that if we are not careful if we don't have mindfulness if we don't have a wise relationship to the forms even though the forms might be beautiful and inspiring if we cling to them then we in fact uh, create obstructions for ourselves and I hope in, in trying to bring awareness to that last night it didn't sound like uh, anything but very grateful for the forms that we've inherited 
And where would we be without them? And the example I gave last night, where would we be without our parents? We couldn't walk in the beginning. We needed our parents to help us learn to walk. But eventually we let go of our parents' hands and we learn to walk on our own. But that doesn't mean to say we get rid of our parents. Or in this talk this evening by Ajahn Chah, the various moods, the thoughts, the feelings, the experiences we have, uh, letting go doesn't mean to say getting rid of. Rather, it means cultivating an able and wise relationship to these experiences. Now, in our case, the, some of the forms that we particularly need to investigate are, are the mental forms that we cling to very firmly. And in fact, Ajahn Chah was asked once what uh, the greatest challenge he had in teaching his disciples and I think he was talking in particular about Western disciples. He said it's their attachment to views and opinions, trying to get them to let go of their views and opinions. Now, we might think that letting go of the tradition, letting go of forms, uh, refers merely to uh, how many sticks of incense we light or how many times we bow or so on. In our case, we're probably not too concerned about how many sticks of incense we like, but we are very concerned about our views and opinions. We really hold to them very tightly, and we get a lot of security out of it. That is why we hold to them. But we need to investigate that. It's not just having an, another opinion, a counter-opinion, like clinging to views and opinions is wrong, and then attaching to that view or opinion, but rather it's an encouragement to look at how much we value our views and opinions, even our spiritual views and opinions, our opinions about practice. And of course, you, all of us will have come across people arguing about what's right practice and how to practice properly. And as soon as we're arguing about how to practice properly, well, that's a sign that we've, of course, been clinging to our views and opinions about practice and something we need to be. Uh, uh, reflecting on. And as we reflect on it, well, then our relationship changes towards it. And it's not the case that we you know, start off with the right attitude. All of us start off with uh, an attitude that's uh, to some degree naive. It doesn't mean to say it's wrong, it just means it's, it's uninformed. And so we need to continually re-inspect how we're relating to the techniques, the traditions, the forms. And then, as I ended last night's talk, up on how do we face the unknown when we get to a point where we've really got a, a conundrum, we've really got a, some really sticky paradox or, or quandary, and we just don't know how to go forward, don't know how to make a decision. Well, first, we check our precepts, make sure we feel safe, quality of integrity that we're living with, and then open up to the reality of knowing that we don't know. Because so much of our conditioning has been about feeling sure, feeling safe, clinging to views and opinions, clinging to information about reality and finding security in that, when we're faced with insecurity, uncertainty, it's really difficult. It can be exceedingly difficult to let go. Mm-hmm. 
But somehow that's what we have to learn to do. To turn towards the silence. To turn towards the silence of awareness. The just knowing mind. Instead of focusing on the content, instead of focusing on the activity, instead of focusing on the the nature of the experience and investigating the nature of our experience, we can also work on awareness itself. And sooner or later, I would expect that's what all of us need to do, that trying to understand what should I do in this situation? What should, what's the right decision? Well, sometimes the right approach is to stop trying to make a decision. As disciples of the Buddha, really we're going for refuge to awareness, truth discerning awareness. That's our refuge. That's what the Buddha is, truth discerning awareness. It's not just the information we have about the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and the Paticca Samuppada, those approximations, those pointings, of course, are precious and relevant. But when it comes to applying these teachings, how pristine is our awareness? I've listened to many people talk about their practice over the years, and the quality of awareness that they're working with is often really not very high quality it's, uh, it's, uh, it's like it's like you're cooking a meal and you've got really wonderful juicy fresh organic freshly picked vegetables and then you you know you fry them in rancid animal fat oh, oh what a pity uh, yeah we started out with some good material. We started out with good aspirations. We started out with sincere interest in reality and trust that, that practice is worth pursuing. But then the awareness with which we investigate our experience is so often polluted with, with greed, with fixed opinions, with compulsive judgment, with a contracted sense of craving. So often it's the case that when we're faced with particularly the experience of not knowing what to do, not knowing the right decision, not knowing how or when to act, we need to let go of trying to get the right decision and know what to do and work on the way that we receive this particular experience. The feeling of, I don't know what to do. How well can we receive it? How embodied is our awareness? How expanded is our awareness? How free from compulsive judging is our awareness? All of these things are are, are aspects that we can work on. Now we could just be uh, investing in using the meditation technique that we started out with and continuing to cultivate some form of concentration, thinking that we have to attain the jhanas before we even begin on the path, we could do that. Or we could honour this heartfelt interest in reality that we find we have and rather than working with concentration, consider the quality of awareness that we're working with. learning how to consider for ourselves 
What does it mean to move from conceptual investigation to feeling investigation? That talk that we listened to tonight, The Teaching of the Cobra, as I said, it's one of my favourite talks. The other one of my two most favourite talks of Ajahn Chah is also transcribed, translated and published uh, in the Collective Teachings. It's also in the beginning of their book, Seeing the Way, and it's called What is Contemplation? And in there there's uh, three or four uh, monks, uh, non-Thai monks, uh, a French monk, Australian monk, a Japanese monk, asking Ajahn Chah, what is contemplation? What is contemplation? Is it like picking up the 32 parts and actually thinking about them? Is thinking the same thing as contemplation? And it seemed Ajahn Chah seemed to be having a little difficulty in trying to understand why these these monks were making such a problem out of it. And, and it, the other side of it, of course, is that trying to really pin it down, you know, trying to talk about... Uh, well, the Thai word of contemplation is kwam picharana, uh, picharana. Actually, to say what it is is not necessarily easy. Uh, to talk about conceptual investigation, to talk about intellectual analysis, that's, that's easy enough. But uh, as this conversation with these three monks, Ajahn Chah, um, proceeded, it, Ajahn Chah got round to saying, well, yes, it starts out with a coarse kind of thinking, a coarse kind of analysis, comparing this with that and that with this. But then he said as it proceeds, it develops into into pichyaranakramsangup, or contemplation in stillness or in silence. Yeah. And it goes from being a conceptual investigation to a feeling investigation. So how do we identify that? How do we know that? How do we proceed on that path? Yeah. Am I contemplating correctly or not? Well, that's a good question. Am I just following my mental proliferations? That's a good question. Am I contemplating the right subject? That's a good question. Should I be contemplating impermanence? Should I be contemplating anatta? Should I be contemplating dukkha? Should I be contemplating the patichasamapada? All good questions. Mm. Now, you could go and ask a teacher, but also we could ask our own hearts. And then the answer comes back and says, I don't know. Now, if we're not careful, if we're not well trained, if we're not well prepared, we busy slap a judgment on that and say, well, I should know. If I was vaguely together, I would know by now. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Hmm. When we reach the point where we don't know, what's really functional, what's really beneficial is to open up and to receive that because the not knowing state can be full of interest, full of energy. So we need to be careful if we're developing, working with the quality of awareness itself. We don't have to just be finding answers. We can be learning how to create the space in which the question is received more competently, more naturally, and learn to wait in that space, that space of open-hearted not knowing. But we know that we don't know. And abide with that. Wait with that. Until maybe we discover that a solution manifests. And this is manifesting in a very different way from, I figured it out, I got the right decision. 
very different. But if we haven't cultivated the skill of, of this quiet feeling investigation, feeling awareness, if we haven't cultivated this way of holding our really important questions, then maybe we never get to that sort of a solution. So I think it's worth trusting that the solution to our quandaries, the paradoxes, the conundrums that we find ourselves in over and over again in life doesn't necessarily lie on the level where we're always arguing. Those different parties in our heads and our hearts that are always arguing with each other. What about this? What about that? It could be this. It could be that. It could be all of those things. Right now I'm just going to not know, freely not know. And as I mentioned last night, sure enough, at some stage we're going to feel obstructed by our fear of insecurity because we used to find security in this idea that we knew. We didn't really know, but we had the idea that we knew and that felt good. So we had a sort of security, a synthetic sort of security. But if that didn't solve our problems, maybe we want to go a bit deeper, trust that there is another way of solving our so-called problems, and that's, as I'm recommending, learning to hold in a different way and wait. And then perhaps we experience the appearance of a solution that we didn't figure out. It just happened. And with it comes a very natural sense, oh, yeah, that's, I can follow that. And it's cool and it's calm. And we don't have to lay claim to it. And that talk Ajahn Chah gave this evening, then whatever arises in practice, whatever arises in terms of experience, agreeable, disagreeable, likable, dislikable, don't lay claim to it. Whether it's happiness or whether it's suffering, don't lay claim to it. You know, like the muhao or the, the cobra, let it be what it is. Don't cling to it. If you cling to it, you're liable to get bitten, get poisoned. And create a problem. So the confidence that we're looking for in practice doesn't necessarily lie on the level where we're still arguing with ourselves in our heads and in our hearts, but perhaps it lies in a quieter, deeper dimension, a more organic sort of confidence. And I would suggest that if we do start to experience that approach, waiting for the solution to our quandaries rather than trying to figure it out all the time, then with that comes the ability to tolerate ambiguity. We don't feel so threatened by ambiguity. Maybe you have some some crazy thoughts going through your head and think, is this true or is this delusion? Or maybe somebody else is talking about their crazy thoughts going through their head. Is this true or is this delusion? Or maybe one of these conspiracy theorists has, has started to try and convince you of, of something that's going on, how it's all falling apart and uh, this person is doing that and that person is doing this and, and they've got a really tidy way of knitting it all together and and can't you see it's right in front of you and you know, present arguments, uh, conspiracies that are going on around us all the time, or what they call fake news these days. 
Of course, there's always been fake news around, but with uh, social media, fake news moves around much faster and people don't stop to investigate. They sometimes just react. Well, maybe we sometimes get to hear some news and uh, is this real or is this false? Whether it's coming from outside or whether it's coming from inside ourselves, is this real or is this false? Is this integration or disintegration? You practice long enough, you'll probably get to the point where that question arises. This experience that I'm going through, this intensity, this challenge that I'm confronted with, is this in service to integration or disintegration? Well, if we've prepared awareness properly, or as potentially we're capable of doing, rather than just focusing on the content of awareness, if we work with the quality of awareness itself, then hopefully we'll have that capacity for receiving it. Even if it appears intolerable, we sometimes need to tolerate the intolerable, accept the unacceptable, endure the unendurable. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Sambhya Namavarata Sadhu Karanga Dhamma Seh